Well, good afternoon, everybody. I want to welcome you all today. I am Peter Russo. I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute, and I want to thank you all for coming. You were at a Capitol Hill briefing entitled Major Tax Reform in 2017. Uh, before we begin, if you're watching via C-SPAN or via the live stream and would like to join the conversation, uh, we'd love to hear from you. So please tweet comments and questions to us and our panel at hashtag Cato events. And again, that's hashtag Cato events. Uh, further, this spring, the Cato Institute released the new Cato Handbook for Policymakers. Uh, copies were available on the table as you came in. If you'd like additional copies, please contact me after the program. I'll be happy to hook you guys up. Uh, meanwhile, fully searchable PDFs are available at Cato.org. And under the heading of Bipartisan Action Agenda, there is a chapter in here on federal tax reform and many others also covering the tax treatment of healthcare as well as on the importance of preserving global tax competition. Um, with that, I want to introduce Cato's Chris Edwards, who is the Director of Tax Policy Studies and editor of www.downsizinggovernment.org. He is a top expert on federal and state tax and budget issues. Uh, before joining Cato, Edwards was a senior economist on the Congressional Joint Economic Committee and is the author of Downsizing the Federal Government and co-author of Global Tax Revolution. <clears throat> that, Chris. Thanks a lot, uh, uh, Peter. Thanks a lot for, uh, for coming here. I think. Uh, some of you might have had to uh, avoid the uh, presidential motorcade there out on Independence Avenue, so that was a bit of a nuisance, but uh, you're all here, so that's good. Uh, I'm going to provide a brief overview uh, of tax reform and then introduce our three speakers today, J.D. Foster, uh, Jason Fickner, and uh, Ryan Bourne. Well, President Trump and Republicans are pursuing tax reform. Uh, the basic idea is to cut individual and business tax rates, uh, to close some loopholes, uh, and to improve the treatment of savings and investment. So why do we need tax reform? Well, tax reform can spur more economic growth, which will raise living standards for everybody. Uh, tax reform can simplify the code, and tax reform can also uh, increase fairness by creating more equal treatment uh, between taxpayers. And the other reason we need tax reform is that we have not had a major tax reform uh, since way back in 1986. Uh, the world has dramatically changed over the last three decades. Uh, international investment has exploded. Uh, entrepreneurs and wealthy people and businesses uh, can uh, have far more choice about where to invest uh, in the global economy these days. Uh, we want businesses to locate here in America, so we need a competitive tax code to make that happen. So if you look at corporate taxes, uh, the last time we cut the corporate tax rate was back in 1986. Uh, before that, our combined federal and state corporate tax rate was about 50%, which was about the average of the OECD industrial countries at the time. So then we slashed our corporate tax rate in 86, uh, but that launched a sort of a global revolution in corporate tax cutting. Uh, rates have plummeted. Uh, the average OECD corporate tax rate has been slashed in half since the mid-80s from 48% down to just 24% today. Uh, we've got the highest rate in the world at 40% when you include state taxes. Many of you have probably heard that Ireland has a 12.5% corporate tax rate that attracts a lot of investment. Uh, but Hong Kong's got a 16% corporate tax rate. Uh, Taiwan and Singapore are just 17%. Uh, so if you're building you know, a semiconductor plant, for example, would you put it in the United States and pay 40%? Or would you put it in Taiwan to pay 17%? Uh, even some European countries have remarkably low uh, corporate tax rates. Now, Portugal, which used to be a, a, a kind of a real leftist uh, country, these days has a 21% corporate tax rate. And Sweden, which is the supposedly socialist country that a lot of American liberals uh, admire, has a 22% corporate tax rate. 
Uh, Ryan will discuss uh, that U UK has uh, chopped its corporate tax rate uh, to just 19 percent today. Uh, so, you know, what are we doing here? Uh, our 40 percent tax rate makes absolutely no sense. Looking at the individual income tax, again, rates have fallen around the world over the last couple decades. Uh, back in the mid-80s, the average uh, top OECD individual rate was 64 percent. Uh, back then, our top individual rate was 55 percent. So we had, we had an advantage uh, on that for a while. So we cut our individual rate back in 86, uh, but other countries started cutting as well. Uh, but we, we kept our advantage uh, in, in individual income tax rates uh, for most of the last three decades uh, up until 2013. Uh, the, de the, the deal that ended part of the Bush tax cuts pushed our top individual rate back up again. And our rate now with state taxes is about 46 percent, which is above the OECD average of 44 percent. So we're not a low income tax country anymore. We're a high income tax country. Uh, this is a problem. High rates at the top end really matter because they punish the most productive people in the U.S. economy. Uh, entrepreneurs and brain surgeons and venture capitalists, people like that, uh, are very responsive uh, to tax rates. Uh, also, a large amount of business income flows through the top brackets in the tax system. So high tax rates means less investment and less work effort by the most skilled people in our economy. So that's the overview today, and uh, I'm going to uh, introduce our three speakers and then turn the, the podium over to J.D. first. Uh, J.D. Foster is Chief Economist at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Uh, before that, J.D. was a senior fellow uh, at Heritage Foundation, and before that, a chief economist uh, at the OMB uh, and advisor at the U.S. Treasury. In the 1990s, J.D. was uh, head of the Tax Foundation, uh, where he was my boss. Uh, J.D. was a very good boss, and I learned a lot from him uh, at the time. Uh, J.D. also worked on Capitol Hill for a number of members. Uh, he received his Ph.D. in economics from Georgetown. Uh, next, uh, after J.D., we'll hear from Jason Fickner. Jason's a senior fellow at Mercatus uh, out at uh, George Mason University. He focuses on tax and budget policy. Uh, Jason was deputy commissioner and chief economist at the Social Security Administration. Uh, he was also a senior economist at the Joint Economic Committee, where I was a, a co-worker uh, with him. Uh, he has a Ph.D. in public policy from Virginia Tech, and he's the author of The Hidden Cost of Federal Tax Policy, which looks like that, uh, which is an excellent overview of our topic today and actually is free on the Internet, so that's a pretty, pretty good bargain. Finally, we'll hear from uh, Ryan Bourne, who occupies the R. Evan Scarf Chair for the Public Understanding of Economics at Cato. Uh, he researches all kinds of economic issues, including tax policy. Uh, before joining Cato, Ryan was head of public policy at the Institute of Economic Affairs in London uh, and also the head of economic research at the Center for Policy Studies, also uh, in London. Ryan's uh, written extensively on economic issues in the UK newspapers, and he holds a master's degree uh, in economics from the University of Cambridge. Uh, so with that, I'm going to hand over the podium to JD. Thank you, Chris. Hello, everybody. In about two weeks, we will be celebrating Memorial Day. And you may find yourself at some point over the weekend watching a ball game. Maybe a golf match, maybe uh, NASCAR, whatever your preference. In the course of watching that program, there's a high likelihood you'll see a beer commercial. There's also a high likelihood you'll see some car commercials. And those car commercials will be along the lines of somebody driving on a windy road. Uh, we get to do that a lot in D.C. 
uh, out on the open road, and they'll be advertising that this is the great Memorial Day sale, low interest rates on loans, big slashing of prices. Why do they do that? Why advertise that way? Because people respond to prices. Prices align what happens in our economy, align supply and demand. People and businesses respond to prices. What you're not going to see, in all likelihood, are any car commercials or any others saying, my car is just as good as that guy's car and it costs $5,000 more. You're not going to see a lot of advertisement advertising that people have higher prices than somebody else. It may seem kind of obvious, but the U.S. economy has now for a great many years been advertising to the world, come to the United States, we have the highest tax burden. Not in total tax burden, but in terms of rates, as Chris was just describing. We've been advertising for years that we have an extraordinarily punitive tax system. We also have been imposing a lot of regulations over the last eight years on our, on our economy that also has been telling the world, come to the United States because we're making it as lousy a place to do business as we can. Well, that obviously is changing at the moment. We're trying to get it to change in tax policy. Through 1986, the last great tax reform act, we learned and then reminded the rest of the world how important low tax rates really are. And then shortly after the 1986 tax reform act, we forgot and stayed in place pretty much for that period uh, till today. Meanwhile, the rest of the world learned the lesson and they kept applying it, reducing rates over and over one country after another. In fact, recently in France, um, Emmanuel Macron was elected the new president. He ran as a centrist. Previously, he was in the socialist government, distinguishing himself by calling himself a pro-business socialist. And I guess that's how you define a centrist in France as a pro-business socialist. It, it's France, what can I tell you? France understood, Macron understood, they needed to lower their rates. Now their top rate on corporate income is already below ours, 33.33%. He ran as a French socialist, now centrist, to reduce the rate to 25%. It's amazing. The, even the French get the fact that you've got to lower your tax rates to be competitive. In the recent presidential election, Bill Clinton gave a speech, and he noted that, yes, when he was president, he signed a bill raising the tax rate on corporate income, but he did so to make that rate competitive with the rest of the world. We'd pulled our rate down, and the rest of the world hadn't completed the process of reducing their rates. So he said oh, it was okay to raise the rate, but now it's not. Now we have uncompetitive tax rates on business income, and Bill Clinton, during the campaign, said we need to reduce these rates. I think that's a pretty good observation on his point. And that's really, from a business standpoint, what, what tax reform is all about. It's not a complicated exercise. It's pretty straightforward. First thing you have to do, we've got to get significant rate reduction. I'm not going to say how far down. It's sort of like you're going to go buy a car. How, how much of a discount do you want? How much can I get? How far can I bring the rates down? That's the issue. And not just for corporations, but for all business entities, pass-throughs as well as corporations. If you want the U.S. economy to start advertising to the rest of the world, this is where you want to do business. It starts with getting the rate down. And we need a, a more competitive uh, capital consumption system, depreciation system. We need to adopt expensing. Uh, we have for far too long had a, a system of um, taking account of when you, a business buys a piece of equipment, how you charge it off over time. And the effect of that has been, along with high tax rates, to produce a highly elevated what's called cost of capital. Now, cost of capital is a term you should be hearing a lot of going forward. And really all it does is it puts into one summary statistic 
the sum total of all the effects of tax policies affecting an investment and says how much does that do these various policies raise the price that you have to pay that is the earnings that you have to have on that piece of capital and so you have a basic level of earnings you have to have to make an investment worthwhile as a business and then you start figuring out okay this tax is going to raise it this tax is going to raise it some more this tax is going to raise it some more the sum total of those effects is the cost of capital what we want to see happen in tax reform is the cost of capital be brought down as far as we can reducing the tax rates and expensing are the two key elements of bringing down the cost of capital the third piece that's core to tax reform is fixing the way we tax international income twenty years ago or so the industrialized world was pretty mixed about half the countries in the world what did what we do today adopting a worldwide tax system and the other half adopted a territorial uh, back when I was with Chris at the Tax Foundation, we used to run international conferences and we would talk about the need for a territorial system and half of the countries we visited would nod yes and the other half would say that's crazy. And the prevailing thought in the United States was that's crazy. Well, it turns out we were right. And almost everybody in the world now has some variation on a territorial system. What is a territorial system? Well, one way to think about that, think of it, is it's kind of like uh, a Las Vegas commercial. What happens in Vegas stains in Vegas. The income that's earned where it's earned is taxed where it's earned and only there. That's all territorial means is company earns income in France or Germany or Japan or China, wherever they earn it, it's going to be subject to whatever taxes are imposed in that jurisdiction. But we're not going to tax it again in the United States. It's as simple as that. It's a much simpler system. You might think of it in terms of uh, for corporate income getting an exclusion for dividends paid. So if a, a foreign subsidiary earns income, pays it to the U.S. parent, you're going to exclude that income from tax. Why? Because it was taxed over there. And if you add tax to it, you're making that U.S. operation abroad less competitive. And because operations are integrated internationally, that is, the U.S. operation works closely with the foreign operation. If you make the foreign operation less competitive, you make the U.S. operation less competitive. That's the reason why even socialist countries in Europe adopted a territorial system, all of them, because they know they need to compete on a global scale, on the, on the global scene, and the only way to do that is to have a competitive tax system. So those are the three key components. There are other things that can be done in part of tax reform, dealing with the estate tax and other elements. Those are all important. The core elements of tax reform, significant rate reduction, expensing, and a territorial system. And right now, if you'll notice, when we talk about tax reform, whether it's the blueprint or President Trump's proposals, they tend to revolve around those three pieces. And that's a big part of the reason why we have a chance of getting this done fairly quickly. Depending on how you want to look at the calendar, I argue that the 1986 Tax Reform Act was actually the culmination of an eight-year exercise. It actually began with a capital gains tax rate reduction that a Democratic senator from Texas named Lloyd Benson, later a Treasury Secretary, championed and got through and got people started thinking about how to redesign the tax system. And that's when what Jack Kemp and, and uh, Bill Roth and others ran with that got us first the 81 tax cuts and then the 86 Tax Reform Act. It was a long process. And part of the reason it was such a long process is that 86 Tax Reform Bill was an incredibly complicated piece of legislation because they tried to solve every single tax problem that they could that they had identified whether dealing with massive limited partnerships or pensions or what have you, this was a comprehensive, in the broadest sense of the term, tax reform. 
if we go down that road right now, we have a really still a great chance of getting tax reform done probably sometime in 2019 or 2020. If you want to get it done soon, which is what we need to do, we've identified the key elements. We need to keep it a very focused package. What are the two or three or four major things we need to do to help the economy to get it to grow, be stronger? And then what are the two or three major pay-fors we need to deal with? And that brings up the next subject of tax reform. Tax reform, it's great to talk about rate reduction and expensing and the great things we're going to do for the economy. But folks, we've got to put the big boy pants on to do this. They're going to be revenue racers. There's going to be some big ones. They're going to involve trade-offs. We're going to have to balance and really think about, do we want this enough to be worth this trade-off? Because you can't get a 28 or 25 or 20 percent or 15 percent corporate rate and, and co comparable pass-through rate by closing loopholes. You get two or three percentage points by closing loopholes. You want to close the rest of the difference, you're going to have to do something that's going to be pretty painful. And that's where the trade-offs come in. If you do it correctly, those trade-offs will still leave the overall plan very much pro-growth. And that's going to be our focus at the Chamber. There's going to be a lot of fights over the details of the rate reduction, over the, how uh, expensing is structured, how transition rules are applied and designed. A lot of these details, but the fundamentals are going to be, what is this going to do for the economy? Comprehensive tax reform is ultimately about taking us from an economy that's been growing too slowly to one that's going to grow up to its potential and raise its potential in the short run and in the long run. That's what it's all about. And as long as this tax reform package looks like it will do that, the U.S. Chamber is going to be supporting it and pushing for it. Where it can be made better, we'll be working to make it better. But ultimately, the bottom line is we will not get caught up in the fractious fighting over the details of the pay force. The Chamber and the business community ultimately is going to focus on, does this work for the economy? Is it going to make it stronger? In effect, when we're done with comprehensive tax reform, are we going to be advertising to the world, running our little commercials on Memorial Day baseball games to the whole world, come to the United States, invest here, move here. U.S. companies aren't going to be looking to move overseas. They're going to be looking to move back. Foreign companies will be looking to move back because this is the place they're going to want to be. We will be advertising to the world if we do comprehensive tax reform right. This is where you want to invest. This is where you want to be. Come here. And for those that don't heed that warning, look out because they're going to be competing against a uh, country, businesses and workers that are armed with a tax code that allows them to compete very effectively uh, and, and we will take on the world uh, and have a very strong economy going forward. So thank you very much. Good afternoon. Uh, again, my name is Jason Fickner with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Uh, I want to thank Chris Edwards and Peter Russo and, of course, the Cato Institute for having me come speak with you today, and thank you all for coming out. Um, basically, we divvied this up. J.D. was going to do corporate, I'm going to do individual, and then Ryan's going to talk about the U.K. experience, sort of give you an idea of what has happened and what kind of lessons we can learn. Uh, but I want to start my time with some general points on tax reform, provide you some guiding principles when thinking about tax reform, uh, and then discuss how the House blueprint and President Trump's proposals sort of measure up to those principles. Uh, I'm also going to sort of echo a few things and paired a few things J.D. said because they're very important to sort of hit home. First, it really is important to notice that the United States tax code currently severely distorts market decisions and the allocation of resources. It is currently impeding both potential economic growth and potential tax revenue. It is in need of reform. Don't think we can do this later. We have to do this now. 
Uh, we're having discussions right now about whether we can hit 3% growth per year. Uh, I remember a few years ago we were discussing whether we could do four. Uh, we were doing three. Uh, and now we've lost the ability. So we're getting lower and lower because we're impeding our economic growth because of a bad tax system. Second, economists generally, and I say generally, prefer a broad tax base with lower marginal rates because it's the tax rates that drive the decision, the margin of what to do next. More work, more saving, more investment in plant, labor, equipment, or intellectual property. A broader base is more efficient because you're not treating some forms of income or expenses different from others and creating bias. That's why you hear economists all the time talk about base broadeners and lowering the rates. Um, again, I say economists generally prefer a broader tax base, but base broadening shouldn't be traded off for other provisions in a vain attempt to achieve some sort of revenue neutrality that would actually raise the cost of capital and undo most or all the benefits of a lower marginal tax rate on business. And JD kind of mentioned this as well. For example, you don't want to trade off lower marginal rates for increasing the length of depreciation schedules. That would undo the benefit of rate reduction. So we have to think about that holistically. Also, and this is my personal take, because JD brought this up, I think we, should we shouldn't basically focus on revenue neutrality, uh, especially on the corporate side. Uh, but rather, we should focus on what is the right tax policy provisions for economic growth, competitiveness, and job creation. The corporate income tax right now is bringing in about $300 billion a year. It's not chump change, but it's diminishing total of our total revenue over time. Uh, the reason it's getting smaller and smaller of total revenue is because corporations are moving income overseas. We know to bring competitiveness and jobs here, as JD says, to bring America, our jobs here in America, we need a lower rate and better tax system. I don't want to get an argument of static versus dynamic scoring, but I know revenues are going down because of tax systems. If we want to see them go back up, we've got to reform our corporate tax. Uh, and focusing on what the right tax policy provisions are for economic growth, competitiveness and job creation, brings me to my third point, which is provisions that just tinker around the edges, uh, like a patent innovation box you might have heard of, or anti-base erosion uh, and profit shifting provisions will only exacerbate the existing problems we already have in the current corporate tax code. There's an old saying amongst us tax economists, the road to tax health complexity is paved with good intentions. So be careful of all these base broadeners and trade-offs. We don't do more harm than good. Um, we have exhausted economic research that proves the more you tax capital or labor, the less you get. So if you want more labor, you want more people to work, if you want more capital, lower the rates. Um, for efficiency, we should tax income once and only once, so we should avoid double taxation. Um, one sort of possible tax reform option we should be discussing more, and you might have heard from the Senate side, Senator Hatch, is the idea of doing corporate integration with individual income tax. Um, only people pay taxes. Uh, I've heard way too often corporations aren't paying their fair share. Corporations aren't people. Only people, living people, can pay taxes. Consumers, owners of capital, um, or, or workers. So if you're saying that a corporation is not paying their fair share, depending on the instance, you're saying workers aren't paying their share, fair share, or consumers aren't paying their fair share, or people who own stocks, which include pension holders, aren't paying their fair share. Corporations aren't people. They don't bear the burden of the tax. Only real people do. So thinking about some of these guiding principles, policymakers need not fly blind when we start talking about defining these goals and principles. What do we want? Simplicity. Uh, the complexity of our current tax system makes it difficult and costly to comply with. It also makes it easy to gain the system. Congress should make the tax code as simple and transparent as possible so as to increase compliance and reduce compliance costs. So simplicity is one. The next one's equity or equitable. Policies intended to benefit or penalize select individuals or groups that riddle the tax code, these policies result in immeasurable unintended consequences. Uh, fairness is subjective, but tax fairness would at least reduce the number of provisions in the tax code that favor one group, economic activity over the other. President Trump's plan and Chairman Camp's plan both do that. Uh, it should be efficient. 
Uh, because the tax code alters market decisions in areas such as work, saving, investment, and job creation, again, it impedes economic growth. You need to do some base broadness but lower the rate. It should also be predictable. Um, the negative effects of the current tax code result, not just from what it does today, but what also what it may do in the future. Uh, such uncertainty deters the economic growth and investment. You've heard about these tax extenders we have every year. Why do businesses want to invest if they're not sure that tax bracket they have or the tax break they get is going to expire in 12 months? So they hold off making investment until they get certainty. So to sum up, um, there's broad consensus about academic research about which policies are most likely to promote solid, sustainable economic growth, which policies are most likely to fail. We want lower rates, broad-based, eliminate loopholes, no double taxation, and reduce bad incentives. Fortunately, on the individual side, the tax plans offered by Chairman Brady and President Donald Trump follow many of these principles. Chairman Brady's plan consolidates down to three tax brackets on the individual side. We have seven right now. Uh, the lower top tax rate would go to 33%. Uh, there would effectively be a 0% tax rate because he doubles the standard deduction. They would simplify tax filing by creating a larger standard deduction, lar larger child uh, and dependent tax credit. It would reduce the need for some people to even file itemized deductions because the standard deduction becomes larger. So it makes it more simple. Eliminate the alternative minimum tax. Keep but improve the earned income tax credit and repeal the estate tax. President Trump's plan, which isn't as detailed as the House blueprint, but gives us an idea of how it's currently understood right now, uh, but may have some changes, would consolidate down to three brackets as well, 12, 25, and 35. So the lowest tax rate, the higher tax rate, we go to 35, it's 39.6 now. We don't know yet, though, what income brackets they would apply to. So with Chairman uh, Brady's plan, we know the dollar brackets each income would be taxed at. We don't yet know that with President Trump's plan. They'll kind of leave that open in negotiation. Uh, it would simplify tax filing by creating a larger standard deduction, it would double it to $24,000 for those that are married filing joint. That's a significant standard deduction uh, that would make tax filing much more simple. Um, they would phase out most itemized deductions, but keep charitable contributions, home mortgage interest, and retirement savings plans, like 401k plans. The rest would basically go. Also eliminate the alternative minimum tax, also repeal the estate tax. The top capital gain rate and dividend rate would go down to 20%. They would get rid of the 3.8% Obamacare tax. Um, there is one potential issue, though, is that the S-Corp rate would fall to 15%. Um, there could be some gaming going on there if we lower the pass-through for S-Corps to 15%. If we do that, I'm going to basically incorporate myself as an S-Corp and no longer get wage income from Mercatus or my teaching jobs at Georgetown and Johns Hopkins. I'm going to become an independent contractor so I can avoid payroll taxes and get a nice 15% rate. So we don't have to equalize the pass-through rate with the corporate rate. We should lower both of them, which J.D. mentioned, but we could allow for a little bit of differential. If we go 15% for corporate, maybe we do 20-21 on the pass-through. If we do 20% corporate, maybe it's 25-28. But, but basically, you want to lower them both, but they don't have to be equalized. Um, we have a once-in-a-generation chance to do tax reform. We really need to do this. Uh, J.D. made a good point of pointing out that the Chamber is not going to focus in some ways on the nitpicky little details here and there. Uh, on revenue neutrality as long as the plan overall is good for growth. That's important to keep in mind. We need to discuss whether or not we actually do want to have revenue neutrality or deficit neutrality, whether we're willing to have some tax cuts that actually lose revenue. For example, if you really are concerned about growth, the growth comes from the corporate side of reform, not the individual side. The individual is good to do, uh, but generally it's more political than it is growth oriented. I'm willing to take a revenue hit on the corporate side and maybe do brace broadening and pay-fors on the individual side. Uh, of course, it's hard up here because everything looks at it as a package. Um, so we have to look at the details and what goes into it. 
but it might be wise in some ways to separate our discussion and say the growth comes from expensing and lower corporate rates. Uh, let's do that. Let's not worry about paying for that. Let's just do that because it gets good growth. And then talk about the individual reforms and say, what do we want to pay for to get lower rates down? What does that mean? And have that discussion. Because really all the growth stuff does come from the corporate side. And that's what really does need significant reform. On the individual, President Trump and Chairman Brady are pretty much aligned. They're very close. There's probably not going to be a lot of fights going back and forth. I think they'll come to an agreement. But the corporate side is where we need to do some work and get some uh, agreement on so we can actually get reform done this year. Thank you. Well, thank you, Chris. Uh, thank you for the organizers of today. Um, the Cato team uh, deserve credit for getting you all here. Thank you all for, for being here. As my accent probably Im implies and Chris has alluded to, I'm relatively fresh off the boat uh, from the UK, so I'm not going to patronize you by pretending to know the, uh, the intricacies of, of your tax code. Uh, but Chris has asked me to talk briefly about two areas uh, where the UK has tried to reform, where you, you might want to uh, think about some of the lessons, and, and that comes on the corporate, uh, uh, corporate tax reform and the taxation of savings. So as JD alluded to, it's widely acknowledged that uh, corporate income taxes are one of the most uh, damaging forms of taxation. Uh, high statutory corporate tax rates uh, not only uh, encourage businesses to locate elsewhere, but they also deter new inward investment from overseas and on the margin deter those, those new investments from companies already operating here as the high statutory rate raises both the, um, the average tax on profits and the effective marginal rate, which is what um, Jason just outlined. So what has the UK done? Well, since 2010, the UK has substantially reduced its headline corporation tax rate. We've gone from 28% to 19% today with a plan to reduce to 17% by 2020. And that forms part of a longer-term trend uh, that Chris outlined. The UK, as, uh, as, uh, uh, as soon as uh, 1980, or as, as long ago as 1980, had a rate of 52%. Um, so at its current 19%, after seven years of, of rate cuts, the UK now has the fifth lowest tax rate in the OECD and the lowest in the G7, and obviously considerably lower than your headline rate here. Now, that doesn't tell the whole story of the reforms in the UK, which broadly come into, in two parts. In the first couple of years of cutting the rate, in order to make those reforms revenue neutral, the government actually broadened the base uh, in a damaging way by reducing the generosity of uh, depreciation allowances, so offsetting the rate cut by raising the cost of capital in other ways, and actually the effective marginal rate on a, on a new investment that broke even actually rose a little bit from 20 to 22%. Uh, so economically, though the statutory rate was being cut, and this was incentivizing new investments, uh, Ceteris Paribus, with, with all other things um, the same, encouraging companies to locate in the UK as well, the reform was not helping to stimulate uh, that new incremental investment from companies already in the UK, because actually the effective marginal tax rate had actually gone up. Uh, since then, thankfully, the government has just focused on rate cutting and hasn't tried to offset um, uh, the rate cuts with base broadening elsewhere. And overall, the package uh, between 2010 and 2017 has been a very large corporate tax cut with only around a quarter of the static costs of the cut offset uh, by the less generous uh, depreciation allowances and other anti-tax uh, avoidance measures. 
To give you an idea of the scale of that tax cut in revenue terms, as a static cost, it was about a third of revenues from when the rate uh, started being cut. So this is not an insignificant tax cut. Now, as I said, the result is the UK is among the lowest statutory rates and average corporate tax rates around. We've still got relatively stingy uh, depreciation allowances in comparison with other countries. So um, our, our marginal rate is closer to the pack, but, but falling. Um, but the long and short is that our marginal effective tax rate is now 17%, um, and that's still lower, significantly lower than the US's 23% uh, here. And what has this meant for, for revenues? Well, in 2013, the UK government uh, dynamically scored the whole package, and they said that with improved economic activity, faster economic growth, over 18 years, the uh, exchequer would recoup somewhere between 45 and 65% um, of the static cost of the cut. Now, you might imagine that might even be higher here, given your high statutory rate, um, and I'm not, perhaps we can discuss later the, the estimates of that here. But actually, early signs suggest that the official statistics, the official forecasts, may have underestimated the effects of the cut on economic activity. Um, nominal receipts fell significantly in the UK uh, after the financial crisis and through to about 2013. But since the time the government has purely been cutting the rate, um, and it aggressively cut the rate to 20% within three years from 2013, um, they projected initially that by this year, um, revenues would be about £38.2 billion, but actually the outturn has been £50 billion. Uh, that's despite revenues from um, some, some other areas of the economy, offshore oil and gas, falling pretty dramatically. Yes, there's been some offsets in other areas, some attempts to clamp down on um, tax avoidance, but continued cuts to the headline rate don't appear to be leading to the falls in revenue uh, predicted. And looking at the longer sweep of history, that, that probably shouldn't surprise us. Um, over the last 30 years, the rate, as I say, has fallen from 52 to 19% in the UK. And uh, revenues, although pretty cyclical, um, have tended to range between about 1.7 and 3.5% of GDP. They're currently around 2.6%, which is exactly the same rate as seen uh, in 1985, when the main rate of tax was 40%, and the Thatcher boom um, was well underway. The government appears to have been somewhat successful too in its aim to attract businesses to locate to the UK. McDonald's, Starbucks, Fiat, uh, Snap, which I believe is the parent company of Snapchat, and uh, a, a range of other companies have moved headquarters or significant parts of their non-US operations to the UK over recent years. And it's likely that the government will continue to articulate that rationale given the need remain open for business post-Brexit and with international coordination putting real pressure on the super low uh, tax jurisdictions, I think the UK sees an opportunity to get even more businesses to locate. So what are the two key lessons uh, for, for the US of this experience? The first one I'd suggest is cutting the headline rate doesn't appear to have reduced revenues anywhere near as much as expected. The second one is the one that Jason alluded to though, which is that base broadening to the extent that you do it to offset the cut of the uh, offset the revenues lost through the rate cut should be done for economic reasons, not just to achieve revenue neutrality. Corporate income taxes are damaging taxes, and the UK's experience shows that reducing uh, depreciation allowances, making uh, depreciation allowances less generous to allow the rate cuts, um, can lead to trade-offs between attracting companies to locate in the UK, 
and actually stimulating new investment. And for the first couple of years when we cut the rates, uh, we cut them in such a way that we didn't actually incentivize more investment. Now, the UK could also offer some lessons on the taxation of savings too. Whilst most focus here has been on business taxation, I agree with Jason that that should be the priority. There has been relatively little discussion on the taxation of saving. Even though the House plan uh, suggests creating what's described as universal savings accounts based on legislation introduced by Senator Jeff Flake and Representative Dave Bratt. Now, the UK has very similar accounts called individual savings account, or ISAs, as we call them, and uh, they're incredibly popular. Now, the broad, broad idea of uh, this type of savings account uh, is this. Um, comprehensive income taxes tend to uh, double tax saving. Therefore, most uh, income tax codes try to exempt a raft of of saving from taxation on returns so that the tax system doesn't discriminate uh, in favour of consumption uh, over saving. But most income tax codes tend to do this by exempting a raft of returns from retirement saving um, uh, alone from, from tax. But there's no economic reason in principle why the tax code should favour certain uh, saving for certain purposes uh, than others. And for that reason, both the UK and Canada have set up more all-purpose savings account with a very simple tax treatment. So contributions are made to these accounts after tax, in the UK up to an, a limit of, very generous limit of $25,000 per person. No income tax is then levied on income from the savings and investments, nor a capital gains tax. Uh, savers can access their accounts at any time for any purpose without penalty. And investors are able to transfer their money between ISA managers uh, fund managers pretty easily. There are no lifetime limits on how much you can put in or earn tax-free. So these are pretty much like supercharged Roth IRAs, the main difference being that there's no withdrawal fees um, or penalties. Um, and basic economics would uh, imply to us that at the margin, that would encourage people who were indifferent between uh, uh, consuming and saving um, be more likely to favour uh, putting that money into a savings account. Now, these are, accounts are incredibly popular, especially for those who want to save but like the security of that liquidity that comes from no withdrawal penalties. 43% of the adult population hold these accounts, uh, compared with about 20%, I believe, of adults who have Roth IRAs here. And 58% of those who own the accounts contributed to them last year um, with a very high average contribution. Now, these accounts appear to be very, very popular with um, people of modest to low incomes as well. About 55% of all those ISA holders um, have incomes of less than $25,000 per year. And relative to their incomes, lower earners hold more in their ISAs than higher earners. Now, the government has added some unnecessary complexities, and we could spend all day going into those. Uh, government tends to try and make things more complicated than they need to be. Um, but overall, this tax reform has led to a tax system which is, for the vast majority of people, vast majority of earnings, neutral between consumption and saving and neutral between uh, the purpose of saving as well. And neutrality is a key principle that we'd seek from uh, tax reform. Now, what about their effects on saving? Well, there's lots of other things going on, and you'd imagine that there'd be a lot of displacement as well from ordinary savings accounts to these, these ISAs. Um, so there's little evidence overall that they might have increased the aggregate savings rate, but where they have had a big impact is helping to alleviate the problem on the margin of 
of poorer people and people on modest incomes not having modest amounts of, of savings to call upon or, or contingencies. As I say, these accounts are popular across age groups and income levels uh, precisely because of their flexibility, which is why Chris and I have wrote on why they should be introduced here too. Now, the proposal by Senator Blake and a Representative uh, Bratt uh, would see individuals being able to put up to about $5,000 per year from after-tax income into the accounts, which would then grow tax-free. Um, but, you know, you could have a more generous starting point from that. We've suggested that actually you could make this $10,000, uh, but at the same time use this as an op opportunity to scrap a range of uh, existing favoured savings vehicles and uh, introduce these accounts as part of a broader tax simplification measure. Now, you always have to be careful about taking lessons from other countries, and it would be very um, easy to look at what's happened in the UK and purely focus on the, the rate and perhaps not look at things that we did wrong in the first couple of years or, or look at the impact of ISAs and not look at the broad framework for the taxation of savings, including pensions. But I think in these two areas, even considering that, and as somebody who's come from the UK to the US, the UK has shown um, things that can be accomplished and perhaps some ways not to do things as well. Thank you very much. <clears throat>